As a heart-centered analyst myself, I'm often drawn to Spock in Star Trek as a model character. The special thing about Spock, of course, is that he's half Vulcan, half a race that is driven entirely by logic and reasonableness and devoid of emotion, and half human. And, of course, humans are known for being emotional and passionate and oftentimes irrational. And what in every version of Star Trek, in every version of Spock, they find is that Spock is actually more effective than just being human or just being Vulcan. That in fact this combination of a very emotional and passionate side with a very logical and analytical side ends up making you stronger and able to do so much more from the synergy between those two sides. Of course, it's very difficult for Spock to walk that line between both of those, and he often finds himself at odds with both sides, arguing with Captain Kirk about being brash and arguing with his Vulcan sides about being emotional. But today's guest is going to talk about how we can take more of this balanced heart and mind approach, and you don't have to have any Star Trek knowledge to enjoy what she's going to share with you. And she shows how she works through her analytics in bringing together both qualitative and quantitative data, in bringing together more heart-centered approaches and bringing together more analytic and cerebral approaches. She also talks about how you can adjust the way that you approach analytic problems or talk about analytic results with people who lean very heavily towards one side or the other always aware of the fact that really we need both sides to come together. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, where we explore the human side of analytics to help amplify the impacts of those out to change the world. With me, Alexandra Mannery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Blair. I'm so excited for our conversation. I love your, the breadth of your experience and all the great things you're going to be able to share today. So why don't we start just by you introducing yourself and telling a little bit about how you found your way to the nonprofit sector. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here and the thought that my experiences and reflections could be interesting to others is just incredibly flattering. So I'm clearly passionate about data and the nonprofit sector. So a little bit about me is my name is Blair Hamalele. I grew up in Connecticut, lived in Washington, D.C. for about six years, and then have lived in Colorado since then. Over the last seven years or so, I've been developing my career as a data analyst, a jack-of-all-trades data analyst, a little bit of program evaluation, a little bit of digging holes in someone's backyard if a small nonprofit calls for that. Um, <laughs> Jack of all trades, data analyst in the nonprofit and government sectors. And how I came to that realm kind of was a funny zigzaggy journey. So to go a little farther back in my life, I really wanted to understand how people worked and operated. I felt like a little bit of an outcast growing up. And so that led me to getting a psychology degree to try to understand myself and understand the world around me and try to figure out how to help other outcasts assimilate into that world. Then my life got dramatically derailed where I went from growing up with a great deal of financial privilege to being thrust into poverty unexpectedly. And so I spent four and a half years of my life waitressing, skipping meals, 
counting pennies, picking up pennies on the sidewalk, desperately trying to get enough money to go back and finish my degree. But in my journey, I discovered that poverty is, it's quicksand. Once you get in poverty, you don't get out. doesn't matter how smart you are, how motivated, how clever, how anything really, there is no way tangibly to escape poverty. There is no ladder. And the only reason I got out of poverty after those four and a half years, after really preparing myself for a lifetime of poverty, is that I happened to meet my husband, who is an engineer and much more economically stable. And so having his support, I was able to go back to school with money I had saved, but I had a cushion now. Then when he moved out to Colorado, I was able to sit down and really think existentially about what do I want to do with my life? What's the point of me? And I realized when I got pretty womaned out of poverty, I like to say, (laughs) when I cheated my way out of poverty, there were so many people I left behind that were wonderful humans that were never going to escape. And I want the purpose of my work and my life to be helping those people scaffold their way out in the way that I couldn't figure out how to do by myself. And so I sat down and asked myself, well, how do I do that exactly? What do I have to offer? I worked at a um, for Department of Corrections largest mental health provider, see if I could do direct service. I can't, I cry too much, can't handle it. So then I went to get my master's in public administration thinking the nonprofit sector somehow will be my fit. And sure enough, I took a program evaluation class, which really brought all these things back together of, I wanted to understand people in a scientific perspective, a la the psychology background, but I also desperately wanted to help people that were suffering and didn't have any supports, thus the nonprofit connection. And so I was able to take those skills that I already had with scientific oriented thinking with an interest and passion about data and apply it to the individuals that I so desperately wanted to support. And so if you look at my resume, it's a bit of a zigzag, but the theme throughout is trying to help people escape poverty, get out of poverty. And even if like, I've worked for organizations that relate to sexual health, I've worked for places that support equitable and challenging education practices throughout uh, public schools in the United States. There's so many different creative ways to tackle poverty. I've also directly tackled it with the uh, TANF welfare program, but that's who I am and where I've been and where I'm going. I'm somehow going to fix poverty. I don't know how yet though. I love it. And I knew from our first five minutes of conversation when we first met how much I was going to enjoy having a conversation. And I just keep realizing how many things I enjoy and I'm so impressed by and I'm drawn to in your experience. I mean, so my dad's a psychologist. And so growing up, we had that same thing of understanding why humans act the way that humans do. And not just from sort of like emotional level, but really trying to put some rigor behind that understanding. And it helps a little bit because you can take things less personally when you realize like why people do the things that people do and helps you think about, well, if my goal is to get here, I can look at this whole body of research and body of knowledge about human behavior and scientifically come up with a way that's going to help me, you know, navigate this tricky social situation, which I'm sure is why both of us were a little bit geeky and felt a little bit different than everyone else when that was how we were approaching social situations. Totally. And as you're saying, it's, you know, a piece of psychology is trying to figure out how people operate and how you can make systems better by understanding the people within those systems. But also from a data perspective, you need to understand how people work in order to explain data. 
I think the greatest tragedy of a data analyst is to write the most beautiful report that no one reads. And I have a lot of reports getting dusty on shelves and it's heartbreaking. But if you can bring in an understanding of your audience and who you're talking to, I mean, this sounds ridiculous maybe, but if I want to give a report to a, an executive director of a nonprofit, do they have any insecurities that they're really worried about? Can I do a compliment sandwich in this report? Is there a way to do that? Can I highlight the things that are most exciting to them and then sneak in the things I want them to think about? And just trying to think about like how, how do they operate? How do they think? And how can my work complement the uh, psychological processes that they are already undergoing? Because our work is complementary. It's not meant to be confrontational. And it's funny because so many people that I interact with find this sort of human-based approach to data a little startling because I think they assume that all people who work with data are like Mr. Spock, yes, right? <laughs> that just is like purely analytical, you know, very straightforward, clear, just logical. But the thing that I think is funny is, of course, what makes Mr. Spock so special is that he's only half Vulcan, right? He has yeah. this human half. And that's what makes him extra powerful. And that's, you know, what I find is that when you leave behind the purely logical and you can combine it with the power of our human emotion, our human value of understanding how we work as humans, you get something that's more powerful than just the pieces by themselves. So as you said, th those pieces are complementary. They are not contradictory or oppositional or anything like that. Yeah. It's interesting, though, and we talked a little bit about this before this discussion of how there's a, sometimes an adversarial relationship that people have with data. There are so many environments that I have walked in where, especially in the small nonprofit sector, where you have the most passionate, wise individuals, the most thoughtful, leading with their heart folks who think they want data analysis. They think they want numbers. But when the numbers don't tell them the story that they were hoping for, it it is like is very viscerally damaging to their identity and their sense of self. Numbers are a threat to the work that they think that they're doing, instead of a tool for them to hone their craft, to discover new opportunities. And it's interesting because that idea that the data folks are cold, are Spock-like, are perhaps calculating and distant and don't care is so damaging because on both realms, there are so many missed opportunities. Data is cold when you don't bring passion um, into it. Like those people with those um, direct connections with the clients in the community who have that deep institutional and social wisdom, they need to help the data people give the data a heart. Otherwise, the report doesn't mean anything. Similarly, the people that are doing that incredibly important direct service work, they are going to hit walls and not understand why they're hitting a wall. They're going to struggle with funding. They are going to limit their growth and their potential if they don't also look at the numbers to discover opportunities there. And so it's just really a shame when there's this mentality that the two mindsets are siloed when really there should be great reverence for each other because they bolster each other and make each other better. I could not agree more. And I think a lot about that framework of the left brain, right brain, mm -hmm. and that somehow you're one or the other, and that they are fundamentally different approaches to the world. 
rather than saying, no, this is sort of a push pull. They work together. You need both, right? Like you need both your pushing muscles and your pulling muscles to be able to do anything. And even though they seem oppositional, right? Try living your whole life with only push muscles, right? Like you're not going to be able to take a single step forward, literally. So I could not agree more about this idea that we need to bring them both together. They both support each other and build up and make something that is truly powerful and actionable and help us change the world. No, absolutely. And, you know, I think that a struggle as well is if there's a familiarity with data, a lot of this stuff sounds very intuitive and obvious, but the idea of how you start with that can be so overwhelming. And I think a lot of the adversarial relationship comes from, um, now I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this is a universal truth, but it, one that I have encountered a number of occasions is if I don't understand something, then I don't like it. That's not just in the nonprofit sector with data. I think we encounter that in our culture in many different places because we all fancy ourselves our own version of a scientist, right? Like people are less likely to trust the news. Like when my dad was growing up, you know, you could trust Walter Cronkite and whatever he said was absolutely the truth because he was a real reporter. You would pick your laundry detergent based on word of mouth recommendations. And now we all are doing our own research and we all are coming to our own conclusions about things like in the news or uh, the products we buy based on our own research. And so when you approach someone in the nonprofit sector, say, who doesn't have a data background, who doesn't understand how you got your numbers exactly? And what is this graph really trying to tell me? What am I supposed to do with it? Because they haven't practiced that muscle before. These are all skills and everyone has the ability to have these skills. But if you haven't practiced it, it can feel intimidating and alien. And if you don't understand something, it's easier to just not engage with it than to really dive in and raise your hand and say, I don't understand this, but I would like to understand. So there's a, a bit of an ego challenge that people have as well. And I will say, I love walking into a room and having no idea what's going on. That's the most exciting room for me because I'm incredibly ignorant. We all are. But I think with data, we all have to be a little bit more open to acknowledging our own ignorance on both and teams. And of course, the thing with data is it has its whole own language. Right? There's words that mean special things around data. And if you don't speak that language, it can be very overwhelming very quickly. And as a in data insider, right, I'm certainly guilty of quickly slipping into that language and sometimes leaving people behind because they look at me and go, you're using all these words that I don't meet, know what they mean. And either I have to look really stupid and tell you, hang on, I don't know what that means, or I'm going to basically push all of this away because I don't want to be in a space where I feel uncomfortable or like I don't understand it. And I think for us as the insiders, we have a huge obligation to recognize when we're doing that, break it down, stop, make things approachable. You know, and that's why I love having these conversations is to say like, yes, we can use some fancy words sometimes, but the core of what we're talking about actually is something that's going to resonate with, with all sorts of different folks. Yeah. I think, you know, an example comes to mind where I've had this debate among colleagues in the past of who is the audience? is the audience yourself. So if we are writing a report for other data analysts, we're going to want to include a very large methodology section. Yeah. You're going to want to include your chi-square scores. You're going to want to go to a level of detail that justifies your approach and your work to other data scientists and other program evaluators. But if you give that report to a layperson and they see the word chi-square, they will throw your report in the fire and run away. 
that is not how you invite people into your world of data. And I remember for one project I was involved, I, I wrote and distributed and uh, did the analysis for a large satisfaction survey for a nonprofit. And my methodology section was literally, I think, seven or eight pages long. And they said, we don't care. Can you summarize it in a paragraph? Yeah. And you know what? They were right. They were right because for their audience, yeah, no one wanted the seven page methodology section. But yeah, you really do need to think about who you're talking to and adjust yourself accordingly. Because if you lead with your own framework and your own bias, then you're not really serving the people in your community that you are doing this job because you care so much about. You're not helping say, people experiencing poverty, if you're writing a report that matches your ego standards and not those of those who are actually doing the direct service, for example. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that goes back to melding the two sides, right? Giving both sides saying like, how do we bring the story in? How do we bring the lived experience? And rather than having the lived experience being conflict with these like very highbrow, very complex statistical analyses, have the data complement that lived experience and help make that lived experience easier or make the actions more effective in supporting that lived experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think in the funding sector, in the elevator pitch for your organization perspective, from so many different realms, there's so many different perspectives that your audience might have. But I think the two general breakdown ones are if people lead with their heart and their head, which we know the binary is not really a binary, but for the sake of like, organizing your communication about data style, it's helpful to think about. And there are people where if you tell them a sob story about the uh, the plight of people in your service sector, their heartstrings will be tugged and they will throw money your way. They will throw support your way. Then there are people will go, okay, well, prove it to me though. Like that's a terrible story, but how big is the problem? What's the scope of the problem? How many people are you serving? How has the problem changed since you started? And if you don't talk to those numerical questions, then you completely wasted your time and vice versa as well. Like people that need a story that resonates and connects with them do not necessarily care about the nitty gritty numbers. And so, yeah, I mean, just back to exactly what we're talking about, just really being an active listener about who you need to talk to and how your data can best talk to them and complement the message, whatever that is. And when you combine them, I think that it's a very effective message because whoever's coming to read that story or hear that story, they'll pick out the part that resonates to them. And if you say, here is an individual event, here is that story, here is a person's experience or anecdote, but I can put the numbers behind it to say that this story represents an experience of 50,000 people or that this story where we show how much suffering happened and how we alleviated that suffering, I can show with my data that we were able to replicate that one story across 80% of the people that we serve. And when you bring those together, that you can take that story that resonates with us as humans and then apply a number or, or some data behind it as evidence to say, this wasn't just once, you know, because it's very difficult to have a single story capture the lives of a multitude. But data can do that. Data can summarize that multitude. And so the story can give the multitude a face, but the number can actually like give voice to the whole multitude together. No, absolutely. Yeah. I think important to think about as well is where do those numbers come from? Like I've worked in environments where I am the the only evaluator on staff 
And I, my position only existed because a federal grant required the position to be filled, but had no expectations what the position would do. So I just putzed around and tried to find numbers wherever I could. And then I've also worked at the Colorado Department of Human Services in their uh, TANF welfare program, where we had an overwhelming volume of data. And the thing is, is on both ends of those perspectives, the data questions are still the same of what story do we need to tell? How do we pull the data to communicate that effectively? Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's important to acknowledge the challenge of trying to figure out what the data is. Because even if you have infinite, well, okay, it's not true. It's not infinite data. <laughs> There's a lot of data they could use that would be very helpful. But having vast quantities of data doesn't necessarily make these questions easier. And the core thing is figuring out what narrative is interesting to tell and then figuring out how to discover that. Mm -hmm. So if you have a giant internal database, awesome. Your job is a lot easier, <laughs> although you'll still have to figure out on the ground practices to make it work. Mm -hmm. Like at the Department of Human Services, we did not do our own data entry. The counties in Colorado had caseworkers do the data entry. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of data. Sometimes people are very busy. These caseworkers are overworked because it's a, one of the most difficult jobs there is. And so they're human beings and they're fallible and they miss things sometimes. And if they miss things, we don't have the right data. So how do we create a culture where people want it to enter the data in, where they understand why it matters if they're checking off like a race, ethnicity, gender box, and why that's actually an important second of their day to consider every day. And then on the other end is a small nonprofit you may not have the luxury of just needing to give someone a poke. Instead, you might have to start being really innovative about what kind of data do we have that we're not using already. Like something that I've brought to organizations that kind of blows their mind is that you can download your data from Outlook and Google Calendar as an Excel document. So at the end of the year, you can analyze how many reports you had about the ABC project or whatever, as long as your titling or descriptions are relatively consistent. Mm -hmm. So there's all kinds of pre-existing data that you're already collecting every single day that can tell your story in some way or another, but you just have to have a creativity about it um, to get to that sentence of this is the story and these are the numbers behind it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a a journey of discovery to figure out what that looks like for people that aren't practiced in that. Mm -hmm. And, and that journey is guided by the goals and your values and that heart center. And I think that this is something like, like I come back to you over and over again, and we're hearing here that your data journey does not start with data. Your yeah. data journey starts with humans, starts with what you care about, with what matters to you. And you set your goals and your outcomes and the things that you're trying to achieve with that data from that. And that may start from a story. It may start from a problem that you see. It may start with you know, why your nonprofit exists in the community in the first place. But all those questions have to be answered first before you get into the data, if you're going to actually find, find anything useful or valuable out of the data. Absolutely. And I think also like a little detour from that though, too, is there are opportunities to start with the data and come to other conclusions. So an example would be something I've done in a number of places is build dashboards in Excel and Google Sheets where, well, I'll pick a Google Sheets example. We had sometimes 40 caseworkers at a time filling in information about clients. 
Did they turn in paperwork A, B, and C on what dates? When was it turned into the state agency? When did we get a response? When did we do follow-up? Essentially a, a chronology of our service to that individual with the goal of making sure that we hit the state criteria, but also our internal customer service expectations for the community. And that's just collecting a bunch of data. We did not think that there was a problem until we discovered that around a certain time of like a staffing change, our responsiveness really changed, adjusted. We suddenly were no longer as responsive to the community as we were a few months before. And that led to the, uh, realizing that we need to hire some more people, move some things around, do some internal analysis to make our processes better. So there was no obvious problem. It's not although everyone in the community called us and said, hey, you guys aren't getting back to us in a timely fashion. There was no alarm bell going off, mm -hmm. but because we were kind of passively collecting data and had some automated you know, bar charts to give us a very generic at a glance output, we could see change as it was occurring and react appropriately. And then also a little bit of a thunder detour, but something I want to throw in there too is the idea of like data being out in the community available to harness mm -hmm. and how... I wish more nonprofits understood the power of information already available. Mm -hmm. I think the idea of we need to collect all of our data on our people is a daunting task. It is difficult to set up the mechanisms to do that in a way that's thoughtful today, but is going to work in 10 years. Because ideally, you don't want to change your systems. You want to have longitudinal data. That's very difficult to set up. It's hard to create a data culture if there's any, even one person who's resistant to that culture. And also it's just, it's just hard to get buy-in initially. But as you're figuring those questions out, there's a lot of public data out there. Like for example, the state of Colorado has a program that it's called CCAP. Essentially the state helps provide funding to low-income families to access free childcare. And what they they don't give a market, um, it's not a market rate, it's below market rate. It, it's under improvement, but at the moment, um, organizations that take CCAP children are losing money financially. The reason I mention all that is the state of Colorado publishes a monthly tally of all the child care centers in Colorado and how many of them take CCAP children. My daughter's daycare was applying for grants for building expansions to try to get occupational therapists in the building to provide specialized services for children with special needs. And they did not know that data set was available. So what I did is I went and told them and said, you are one of the largest providers of CCAP childcare in the state of Colorado. This is a spreadsheet from the state that is published monthly. Go here, pull the number, put that in your grant application and tell the story that you're making a difference in the community. Mm -hmm. They had no idea that data was free and publicly available. And on some part, I think that's a flaw of government systems, not just in Colorado, all over the place. But I think more significantly, I think there's a piece of the nonprofit sector that looks to government as a distant alien other. And that should not be, that should also be a complementary relationship that supports each other. And so if there's data that you wanna know and you don't know how to collect, Go make some friends in government, send a nice email, you know, just have a conversation because there could be data that you could put in your annual report, your grant application. That could be a game changer. That's very low effort. You never know. You mentioned several really important things in that story. I think the first is that idea that that data 
that you found for, for the child care center was essential to being successful in a grant application, right? Yeah. That that data was not a luxury. They needed it to be able to amplify what they were going to show to make the case of why they needed money, right? It's really hard to convince a funding body to say, here, give me money because I like what we do. But if you can say, you should give us money because we are the single largest CCAP provider and here's how much we're being underpaid by, they could pull that number from their financial. And then you said they have this publicly available report that they can say, here's how we do it. That's a pretty compelling story to say, this is why we need money. And if you don't give us money, here's what's going to happen to 500 children. We're not going to be able to stay in operation. And so one, that idea of moving from data being a luxury to data being essential to telling your story, to understanding to your previous story, understanding that there was an issue. How do you know there are problems if you aren't tracking things that are important to your organization? And because you were tracking your responsiveness rate, you knew when there was an issue, even when you wouldn't have necessarily gotten it because the data was able to summarize up the experience of all of the community members across 40 different caseworkers. Maybe each one of those caseworkers didn't know, or they they themselves weren't necessarily that much less responsive. But when you bring all the data together, you can get all of that insight and that view that isn't available necessarily with just, you know, the experience of one person or the knowledge of one person. So that was the first thing I think is really important is how we're moving from data being a luxury to recognizing just how critical data really is. And then the second was that idea of how much publicly available data there is. And I agree with you with the whole like a government kind of being an alien entity. And I was knee deep in the census data the other day. And it's funny because right, I do this for a living. I am a data professional and I still find it a little overwhelming to like wade oh, yeah. through the 66,000 variables that are present in the census data. But there it is. It is there and available to support the work that you're doing to understand your community, to understand the I mean, everything from like how many people have disabilities in your neighborhood to who has health insurance. I mean, there's just so much knowledge there. And I loved your your idea of reaching out to a local official, whether that's somebody, you know, in your public health department or, you know, wherever it might be that when you can connect to somebody and say, help me navigate this. I am looking for something to help me understand X, you know, do you have it? do you know someone who might help me be able to navigate this or point me in the right direction? So I think those are all really important things. Something also to throw in about the data available from the government is, so in Colorado, we have something called the Colorado Open Records Act, the CORA Act. And essentially what I'm overgeneralizing, but basically what CORA says is if you can make any data request to uh, the state of Colorado, and if the data is available, they must provide it to you. And if it is not available, um, they can provide it, but you'll need to pay for the labor. So I will highlight that uh, no one likes Cora. It is considered uh, very antagonistic. Please just make friends as much as you can with your government officials because they do care and would love to help you. Don't use Cora as a weapon unless you need to, but it is available. And I would consider looking into other um, state level governments and see what other options are available there too. Because ultimately, data is powerful. It is it is power, and especially as a small organization trying to like scream into the void, you need that, and you need a sense of entitlement about data. You have a right to know what's happening in this world and in this community because you're doing important work. And then just another one as well to throw in is so a nonprofit I worked for that serves individuals with developmental delays and disabilities 
was realizing that a lot more people are moving to their service area in Colorado. You have a big population boom here. And there's a big housing development in the community that was under construction. They did some math and realized, okay, they're going to be X number of homes and they estimate X number of people and approximately maybe 3% of the population may have a developmental delay or disability. And they were able to project when these buildings are done, when the development is through, our service um, population may grow by X number of people. And so they're able to preemptively hire and train staff a year in advance to get ready for a housing development. And so data can be in your newspaper, data can be in, well, a government repository, government can be, or data can be in the census, anywhere. And it's all about just being really creative. Sometimes the question of um, what data story you want to tell starts with your heart-oriented story. But there's a lot of other data that can help you nuance what your heart story is. I think that story about being able to predict ahead of time the needs of your community is such an incredible story because, again, it starts with their what they care about. They want to make sure that they are serving an incredibly vulnerable population. And that population requires a lot of skill to serve properly. It's not something that you can just spin up like that and have ready to go. And so they started there. They said, this is what matters to us. We want to make sure we're caring for this population. We're going to use data to help make sure that there's this seamless coverage, that we're ready for them when they arrive and they show up. And and I think, you know, we had discussed before this idea that data is not just a requirement for being able to get grants, though it is, right? And it's not just about being able to spot problems um, that you might have missed otherwise, though it is, right? That critical things. It's also about being able to respond proactively. Right. And, and respond proactively is a little bit of an oxymoron to be able to proactively you. take a step to avoid what could become a problem in the future rather than just having to react to it. So that story is incredible for the idea of we actually headed off what could have been a huge catastrophe or a huge um, human problem, a huge set of suffering for, for people who were not getting supported. And we were already prepared and ready for them because we could extrapolate that from data that were coming in. Yes. And a lot of that really just comes back to that scientific mindset of trying to collect as much, well, data, both uh, in terms of numeracy, but also just information about your population. Sometimes that comes from casual conversations and storytelling, right? Like that housing development, maybe that conversation started because a few people were just having a water cooler chat in the hallway. Like data can be hard numbers in an overwhelming spreadsheet, but data can also be stories. That's part of it as well. Um, Yeah, there are just so many opportunities to look at the world around you and hone your craft accordingly. And that's why it goes back to what we were saying before, the um, occasional animosity between numbers people and heart people is so out of place because all of those stories, those are heart stories, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of we want to be more responsive to our community in a more timely way, that's a hard story. You don't want people to be suffering, waiting by the phone, wanting to know if they qualify for services. Timeliness is an emotional customer service piece, right? And we use numbers to support that personal goal, um, that um, emotional goal. 
And similarly, wanting to, yeah, make sure people don't fall through the cracks after a giant housing development comes in. That's a heart story as well. And so those numbers and that passion must complement each other. Um, and maybe they're different people that do it because they're just, you know, people have different um, leanings towards how they function psychologically. But ultimately, those people must be able to talk to each other because they go hand in hand. Yep. And in data, there's a concept of qualitative data versus quantitative data. And I think that the same antagonism that we can see in like the sort of concept of the heart person and the concept of the, the mind person or the numbers person also is even within the data world where there's a conflict between like the value and the usefulness or how we operationalize this qualitative data versus quantitative data. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit first about what do we mean by those two terms? Because there we go with our big fancy words again. Um, and how can we kind of help address that gap to, to keep it from becoming animosity or a feud, but actually to be something that supports each other? So the line between qualitative and quantitative data, I'm going to pretend like it's a binary and then I'm going to make it very blurry uh, because everything's blurry and not fun. So quantitative data is essentially numbers, units of things that you can count, uh, things that are measurable numerically. So the number of unhoused people in your community, that's a quantitative measure. How that number has changed over time, that is a quantitative measure. Um, how many um, of those unhoused people have blue hats? That is a quantitative measure. A qualitative measure is something that's a bit more nebulous, a bit more sentimental, a bit more personal. So like if you we were to do a focus group with those homeless individuals or an interview, we might like discover that as people are telling stories, they're telling us a great deal of detail about maybe, uh, oh, there's a lot of new hostile architecture in the community and people are expressing their feelings about that information pulled from those um, or quotes pulled from those focus groups interviews would be qualitative because we're not putting any numbers into that. Someone observed hostile architecture, but I can't tell you how many benches are now out of spikes on them. I haven't counted that yet. So that would be quantitative. Okay. So numbers versus stories. But then the blurry part, I think, comes down to when you're trying to take, like, I'm going to take a survey in particular and how it can get blurred. So with a survey, you might ask everyone to identify their gender. You have, you know, however many boxes that is appropriate and for gender options. And then you might ask people to have an open-ended question of how did you feel in whatever situation? If you count the number of male, female, non-binary, et cetera, individuals, that's going to be quantitative data because you're counting a thing. If you go to that open-ended question and you're pulling quotes from it, that's qualitative. However, if at maybe 60% of your respondents in their qualitative response mentioned that, I don't know, there was a strange fish odor in the restaurant and you acknowledge that in the report, 60% of individuals in a survey talked about the weird fish odor, you've turned that qualitative data into quantitative because you're counting numbers of instances of mentioning something. So the idea of that quantitative is pure numbers and qualitative is pure storytelling, it's fuzzy, but that's the easiest way to talk about it, I think. And it's fun because that sort of microcosm within the world data, world of data for qualitative versus quantitative mirrors what's happening in the larger world when we talk about sort of being number-minded or, or heart-minded is that you can cross over very easily and I think it makes them stronger. 
right? It makes it easier to understand 150 stories if you can kind of make some numerical summarizations where if we say, you know what, 100% of these stories mentioned this idea or only one out of 150 stories talked about this or felt like this, that bringing those two together can help you understand both. And similarly, the qualitative stories can help you interpret the numbers. Like, great, if we have, you know, like you said, 60% of people thought it was like a hostile architecture development. Well, actually, it was the story about the architecture is what made us think to even look at and go count the benches or whatever it was, right? That the stories can help you interpret the numbers that you're seeing. And then the numbers can help you grasp and make sense of a wide array of stories. So both qualitative and quantitative data have to work together, but then also these like quantitative and qualitative people have to be able to work together. Actually, it makes me think of another story. Actually, at the Department of Human Services, a colleague of mine noticed that, so during COVID, a lot of the Department of Human Services offices needed to close their doors and go fully remote, just like everyone else did. So during this timeline, a colleague of mine noticed that applications for the TANF welfare program had really dramatically dropped off in this one area in Denver. And my colleague is not from Denver, so he, you know, we started talking about what's going on here. So we looked at the map. He showed me the line of the, the boundary of this area of drop-off. And I go, oh, that community has a very large homeless population. And as we talked, you're talking about what services to unhoused people need. Well, filling out an online application for TANF is going to be particularly cumbersome for these individuals, especially if the libraries are also closed due to COVID. They need a brick and mortar location for applications. And so we kind of connected some dots and realized the drop off in applications, that quantitative change was really a qualitative story of the consequences of not having a brick and mortar location to serve a unique population that needed that specific access. And so, yeah, absolutely hand in hand. And it could have gone the other direction as well, right? Like the discovery could happen in the opposite way, but the two mindsets, yeah, again, need to puzzle together. So I obviously could talk to you for hours and hours. And since you're in my neighborhood, right, we're, yeah. we're, we're in Colorado together, which I don't find very often. I'm sure we will have many more wonderful conversations over coffee. But I wanted to wrap this up with some ideas of actions or maybe some questions or conversations that people could have if they find themselves sort of in one of these potentially adversarial camps and they're noticing some friction or some breakdown or some silos with members of the other group or with um, actions from the other group, right? whether it's that we're relying too much on numbers or relying too much on stories, do you have some suggestions for how we can proactively and intentionally bridge the gap and bring these two sides together? Yeah, so I have two thoughts. The first one is what, what questions should you ask yourself? And so I think pretty quickly listening to this conversation, you probably put yourself in one category or the other. And so if you put yourself in the general category of leaning towards quantitative numerical storytelling, then it's really important to ask yourself when you're writing a report, so what? Great, 10% of people something, so what? What's the consequence of that? What's the human toll of that? And what are we supposed to do about it? I think I've seen a lot of reports that explain this is what is happening, but there's no explanation as to why I'm supposed to care about this thing happening or what I'm supposed to do with it. So after you write your report, 
definitely connect with those more heart-based individuals, pull from their wisdom and knowledge and make sure that their sentiments are reflected in the report to give you that. So what on the other end, if you're someone that leads with their heart, you need to try to imagine the skeptic that's trying to tear you down. So you just gave the most impassioned speech about the cause that you care about and someone doesn't believe you. They literally think that you are a liar and they do not believe you. How are you going to prove that person wrong? Your feelings are not effective proof. Your observations aren't effective proof. You have to paint that picture, that person, a bigger picture of a bigger reality. And that's where the numeracy comes in of connecting with that other space. So either way, try to imagine the person opposite from you and incorporate that person's needs into both your exploration of your data collection process, your report writing, your analytical thinking approach, and so on. And then the other, which complements that, is humility. I think a lot of adversarial relationships in general, even outside of this space, are built on an idea of threat. You threaten me, and so I don't want to deal with you. You threaten me, and so I need to push you away or push you down. And I think this spelling, that um, notion, is a really important first step to building that connection. Because again, as I said before, I'm a very ignorant human being and I'm proud of that because I'm always working on becoming more knowledgeable and more wise. But I will always start a conversation with especially a heart-oriented person saying, I know a little bit about something, but you probably know a lot more about X, Y, and Z. So I'm really excited for you to read what I report for us to talk and for our reflections. And I invite you to tell me when and where I am wrong. And opening that door to being wrong or being corrected is really essential to starting that deeper level of conversation. And frankly, it makes your data better. I have had uh, data in reports that heart people have told me is not an accurate portrayal of what's happening on the ground. And that is incredibly enlightening. Think of the damage you can do if you put useless data in your report or misleading data accidentally. But opening the door with humility is so important and an openness to the idea that you could be wrong, the other person could be wrong, and that you're working together to get to a goal. But yeah, everyone likes coffee. Just start a conversation over coffee with your local government agency, (laughs) with everyone you work with. Just talk data and have a ton of caffeine. One of the first people I interviewed for my podcast very early on, he talked about this idea of having like data with donuts Tuesday. Oh, I love just this idea of like, make it a social event, sit down and just have some conversations. And, and later, um, I I talked to this wonderful woman, um, Vina about participatory data analysis. And I realized that's a lot of what you're saying here too, right? This idea that when we have conversations about data and we're open and we're humble and we recognize like we bring something of value, but others bring something of value too, that might be different. And it might come from a different place. That when you bring that together, when you bring the stories to help us contextualize the numbers, the so what, why should I care? And we can bring the numbers to help bolster and back up our story or also to catch us out when maybe our story isn't the full perspective or our story might be biased or our point of view might be this big and we need to understand a much bigger point of view. And the data can help us recognize exactly that when we, we may have had a narrowed or incomplete view from our single lens. So. It's so important to tell the heart people that 
tell them, to show them that they have a, a role in data. Data isn't outside them, that they are essential agents of using data. You know, often when I build a relationship, I will bring my, you know, my work to someone that's more heart oriented and I will tell them, I need your help. I really need your help because you are my audience. And I need you to tell me if something doesn't make sense. Because if I write a report that doesn't make sense, then I didn't do a good job. Can you help me do a good job, please? And the first time it's a little awkward because they never believe me because they assume that I am yeah. Spock, that I am yeah. this alien creature. But then after you do that a few times, they start to trust you. Yeah. And once that trust is built and they understand that how important their role is and how you actually, you're not condescending to them, that you're showing them real deference and respect people open up a lot more. And that opens up more opportunities for data exploration, those water cooler moments, talking to those really wise on the ground people. That's one thing I miss about COVID actually is being in the office and getting to overhear interesting conversations that spark data journeys. (laughs) It's so true. And just that idea of, again, like together we're better and together we're stronger. It's true in in all aspects of data, bringing the different viewpoints in, bringing the different perspectives and bringing that synergy that comes out of a random conversation over the water cooler or going to someone else who has a different point of view and saying, let's talk about this. Let's explore this. Let's see what we can find. So, well, thank you so much for your conversation today. Like I said, we could talk for, at least I could talk for three hours with you. This has been such a fun conversation and I really do appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, The time flew by. How did that happen? (laughs) I know. Like I said, we could keep going for a long time. So thank you so much for your expertise. Absolutely. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at marakanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.